you listen to Irish Radio Canada's Home and Abroad and we are in Ireland's ancient east and we've been down around the ancient east before and we've covered a lot around Waterford but we're now over in Wexford and it's, I'm delighted to get back down here it's been a long time since I was in Wexford and been able to tour around although we get to, did get to Tintern Abbey uh, we didn't get to talk to anyone there but we're now at Johnstown Castle Estate Museum and Gardens and I have Milo Miller with me and Milo is one of the curators here Milo thanks a million for having us here delighted to have you delighted to have you here and um, you know one of this is a part of the country probably it, it is one real history the ancient part of Ireland the ancient east it is yes we have an awful lot of history here in Wexford uh, and I'm always given out actually that there's not a Wexford, uh, museum in Wexford town itself um, because we've just such great stories to tell here uh, a Viking founded town Wexford town itself uh, the Normans invaded Ireland through Wexford uh, we have that great association then Cromwell he comes to Wexford he sacks Wexford town in 1649 1798 the county Wexford is one of the of the 1798 rebellion which is an, was an attempt by the Irish to overthrow British rule in Ireland um, 1916 then um, we have here in uh, southeast they're one of the towns only towns outside of Dublin that take part in the rising so lots of history here in Wexford so why would you say there's no um, museum in Wexford because the buildings must be there there's yeah, again Wexford town is a funny town because again there's been so much uh, Cromwell sacked the town 1649 yeah. 1798 then the rebellion so we probably have lost a lot of our buildings history right. we say they're not maybe some of them not as old as in other parts of Ireland because uh, I noticed now we were there we went in and it's pure, first of all it's beautifully pedestrianised yeah that's and great yeah that's a great thing about the town is. yeah and I noticed that we were walking from down along I don't know which street it was but I noticed the big abbey up in, in Selsker, probably Selsker Abbey yeah that's yeah. the abbey there again part of that abbey would date back uh, hundreds of years the tower on it there is uh, a Norman tower right. um, so that would be yeah, quite an old building there and is that that is in public works is it being protected it is protected yeah, yeah. and it's, there's a graveyard there with it and they actually only opened that to the public this year for the first time during the summer months which has been a great thing it's a nice thing that we have it there in the town but as I say the lack of museum is probably unfortunate but we're very lucky yeah. we actually have a museum out here in Johnstown Castle Johnstown Castle where, where you're at here yourself today is only about four miles from the town so it is quite close so we do have a fairly substantial museum here on site right so Johnstown Castle itself so you talk about the Normans what's the, the history of the castle so the history of the castle well we know that there's been people here on the site since 1169 and they were the Normans and Geoffrey de Esmond he was one of the first Anglo-Norman knights that arrived here in Ireland uh, with the Anglo-Norman invasion in Ireland Geoffrey Desmond, he was granted lands here for payment for his services with that Anglo-Norman army. So the Esmond family, there would have been a Catholic family, they were the Anglo-Normans who were Catholics. Uh, they were here at Johnstown for almost 500 years, so they were here quite a long time. Uh, and they would have been here then up until 1649, until the arrival, and we mentioned them just a little bit earlier, of Cromwell, Oliver right. Cromwell. And Cromwell, he comes over to Ireland, and this is Britain's final attempt now to put their British stamp on Ireland. He comes over here in um, 1649. As I say, he arrives into Wexford. It's a walled town. The town doesn't surrender to him. 
Now they are in the process of uh, negotiating a surrender with the town Cromwell and the town's uh, soldiers. When for some reason or somehow um, Cromwell's troops breached the town walls. Now most historians agree Cromwell didn't give that order. The soldiers breached the walls of the town to run amok in the town and they, um, they killed up to 2,000 uh, people in the town. Right. So it was a huge tragedy for Wexford. Um, <clears throat> many of the people would have been killed in the streets of the town. Others would have uh, drowned while fleeing into the river Slaney trying to escape the Cromwellian soldiers. Now Cromwell, he didn't give the order, but it probably plays into his hands because he's going to continue with a conquest of the whole country. Well, essentially when he goes to the next town, he can now say, well, if you don't surrender, this is what will happen. Right. And right. most towns do surrender. And having successfully completed his campaign, he would have then looked at these large Catholic-owned estates and he would have sent out his troops out here to Johnstown Castle and we have a saying in Ireland you're probably familiar with it to hell or to Connacht uh-huh. uh, well that would essentially have been the attitude of the Cromwellians to the Esmond family here at Johnstown Castle and to hell meant die and go to hell yeah. or else move over to Connacht right. and Connacht is located over on the west coast of Ireland hemmed in by the River Shannon poorer lands over there so a way of removing these uh, problem families right. most of the Esmonds they did upstairs and they went off to Connacht but some did actually stay in the Wexford area Overstreet then he grants the lands here to um, or sorry Cromwell then he grants the lands to a Lieutenant Colonel Overstreet for payment for his services with the Cromwellian army now one of the problems you have when you have a large army is how do you pay them well land is one way uh-huh. so Overstreet he acquires the lands as I say for payment for his services with the Cromwellian army um, but Overstreet himself he has no real desire for the estate. He sells it on to his niece, um, Elizabeth Reynolds. She's married a man by the name of John, and they have three daughters. And her eldest daughter, Mary, she marries a merchant or a businessman from Wexford Town by the name of John Grogan. And that's the start of the Grogan family line into the estate. So you've 850 years of history with two families here at Johnstown Castle, essentially. The Esmond family and the Grogan family. So the area of Johnstown, do you think was that the John that you mentioned? Yeah, well, there's a couple of theories, but I suppose the one that we like to think uh, is true, but it's most likely not, is that King John camped in or around the area. Okay. It is most likely that, well, we would have had a John Esmond, there was John Grogan, right. most likely that it's Johnstown after yeah. one of those. <laughs> keep it simple. <laughs> keep but it it's, not simple. As, it's not as romantic. No, it's not as romantic. <laughs> yeah, we keep it simple. <laughs> right. So to put it in uh, context then of area, how big of an estate? Well, there's a thousand acres here now. Uh, there would have originally been ten thousand acres. A thousand acres here at present, and we would have a thousand or a hundred, sorry, a hundred acres then uh, open to the public. Right. Uh, Chagas, they own the whole estate here. Uh, they would farm the rest of the land. Right. Uh, they research, they do research and, and uh, farm research. So right. basically, that's what they would do with the rest of it. So then, the hundred acres, and we'll get into a little bit more detail. But from a visitor perspective. Um, it's open all year round? Open all year round. We're only closed three days of the year for her sins. So that's uh, uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and Stephen's Day. So all right. oh, every other day of the year we're open here for business. Right. And that would be from kind of 9.30, 9 in the morning? So 9 o'clock, nine to, uh, 9 to 5, yeah, in general. Oh, a little bit longer in the summer time, a little right. bit shorter in the winter time. We close a bit earlier in the winter. 
Right, and then during the last two to three years during COVID, it must have had a serious impact. It did, yeah, but we were very lucky with it in that we got to keep the grounds open throughout. We were only closed there for five weeks over COVID, and we opened the grounds back up to the public. Now, we couldn't open the Castle Museum, no, that sort yes, of thing, yes. but we did keep it going, and people, people of Wexford were delighted to have it. It's great walking facilities there. Nearly within yeah, the, the yeah. five kilometres. And we were able to keep the coffee going, but we would have served it out through the doors rather than people coming in. Right. Uh, so right. people would get their coffee in that as well. So right. it's kind of a nice thing to have kept it okay. going. So what we'll do is, you're going to tell me what somebody can expect to find as soon as they walk through the door. I will do. And where to go from there. will do. Welcome back. You're listening to the Gaelic Hour. I'll show you Canada. Sorry, you're listening to um, At Home and Abroad on Australia, Canada. And uh, we're talking to Milo Miller here at the Johnstown Museum, Estate and Gardens. So when someone comes through and they're on a tour, Milo, what are they going to find? Well, if you walk in the doors here, uh, you'll uh, be greeted with a very nice reception area. First thing you'll probably see is we have a coffee shop. Uh, you can have lunch here. A lot of people, when they come in, the first thing they do, I'm kind of a bit like that myself, I go and get the cup of coffee before I head on out then. Uh, but when you go up to the reception uh, desk there, you'll have a couple of different choices. You'll be offered uh, a ticket for the grounds and museum, or then you can add on to that for the grounds, museum and a tour of the castle. Right. So there are three things you can kind of do. So if you go up, uh, leave the visitor centre here, the first thing you'll see is the museum. Now most people, they'll probably head out into the grounds first, then maybe right. back over into the museum. Museum, magnificent museum. Now I'm very biased because I work on a lot of the collections in there. So should, we, should we maybe make our way? Yeah, and, 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 yes. And we'll walk up so, here. So you're okay. We've got this side so here. The kind of stuff that, that you would have, the artifacts that you'd have, um, where these would all be very much coming from around the area here? So they come from all over the place. Uh, so we'll walk up in here now and I'll give you just a kind of a little bit of a flavour of what's around the museum. That'll give you a bit of an idea. Uh, so yeah, we have stuff from all over the country. It's called the Irish Agricultural Museum, and but there's this much. This is not a taxidermist um, peacock. That's a real peak. We're 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 now standing probably about uh, less than two meters from a beautifully coloured peacock. Uh, I know it's the peacock because it is. You're color. right. Yes, uh, uh, he's lost. As you can see, he's lost his tail. Yeah. Uh, he um, he'll start growing that tail back now when it comes to about. Uh, December, so we have magnificent displays here around May time. These tails are all out, but they lose them for the winter, and you can Ooh. see why. Look at the wet day we have here today. Right. Well, you know who wants to be going around with that big tail throughout the winter months? Right. So he loses beautiful, it for the winter. Beautiful colours there. Uh, that's them. These are the little things you see that make, make a little trip interesting. You come across, they, they, I thought I saw, did I see wild turkeys out there? No, you didn't see turkeys, there's no turkeys. I don't know what you would have seen out there. Uh, now, we would have a lot of wild... Oh, it would have been peahens? The peahens, yes. Okay. That's what you're seeing, yes. Okay. There would be peahens. Nice. <laughs> uh, lots of wildlife here, though. You right. have the swans, ducks, but they all kind of look after themselves. Right. Uh, so now this is kind of one of the uh, exhibitions, this is a fairly recent exhibition uh, and this is, and again this is another thing we had here in Wexford, uh, another first. 
1911 we had a lockout here in Wexford Town and it was a precursor to uh, the lockout of 1913 the very famous one in Dublin yes. uh, but we would have had Connolly here we would have had Cat Larkin here so we like to kind of think they probably cut their teeth here in Wexford before then they had to deal with the lockout in Dublin but Wexford had three of the largest foundries in the country or it had the largest one uh, which was Pierce's foundry uh, very successful foundry a lot of stuff we have here in the museum is in relation to Pierce's, but they made their mark on the whole country and they exported then all over the world, Canada, uh, to America, to Australia. So there's pieces of Pierce machinery can be still found to this day on farms around yeah, the world, I basically. The, I remember seeing the Pierce, particularly was the mangle for the, yeah. the, the, the turkey, have or look, the turnips. There's one up there, yeah, yeah it's up yeah. there in the corner. But in 1911, the workers at that foundries they wanted to join the union yeah. and of course the foundry owners they didn't want that yeah. so we ended up with a, a lockout here in Mikesford very serious it went on for months um, as I say we would have had Connolly come to Wexford he eventually negotiated a uh, um, I suppose the kind of a truce between the two parties right. uh, and he successfully did that so we had the success here that the, the foundries actually ended up acknowledging the union which never happened really in Dublin. No, not at that time. No, no. didn't at that time. No, because um, I had the privilege of visiting the Labour Museum I in Dublin so. where it had all the full story of, of the lockout in Dublin. Yeah, yeah. all very good. Yeah. Uh, so when you're walking through this exhibition there's some great just even random things about different people and we say Connolly and women's rights uh, so we say at a time when the deputy leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party John Dillon stated that women's suffrage will I believe be the ruin of our western civilization. it will destroy the home challenging the headship of man laid down by God may not come in your time I hope not in my time so there's the attitude that's kind of going on. But Connolly at that same time, James Connolly, he was championing the cause of suffragists in Britain and the Irish Women's Franchise League in their struggle for votes for women, a key battle at the time. And this woman, Louis Bennett, she became a suffragist and trade unionist here in Ireland. She described Connolly as one of the best suffrage speakers I have ever heard and a thorough feminist every, in every respect. He taught the Transport Union of Dublin to support women workers' struggle for political rights. So that shows us James Connolly, and he's Indeed. thinking at the time. Indeed. Um, and here then we have a great one about the schoolboy strikes of 1911. I didn't know about that. Yeah, no, again, I was researching this exhibition, and you come across all sorts of things. This was a really interesting one. The boys in Dublin, in a Dublin school, they went out on strike and there was a couple of things they were looking for. They were looking for free school books, but of course also they were wanting less or a, a more media, a, a lesser corporal punishment, I suppose, essentially. But again, some of the quotes from that are brilliant. Uh, they placed, uh, they placed uh, pickets in the vicinity of the school and the boys, they paraded around their demands, which were talked on their slate boards. There were simple, the strikers wanted cheaper school books, shorter school hours, and an end to practice of Canaan, of course. <laughs> the traditional working class hatred of scabs was evident to a newspaper report two days into the strike, quotes a striking boy, if we don't get our rights, we won't go back and we will bring out all the boys tomorrow and nail the boys who are at the school in the evening. 
This fighting talk was backed up by actions that the black legs were pelted with stones and cabbage stalks. The reporter was invited by the boy to come down Mr. at three o'clock and see their old ones, meaning their mothers, bringing them home under their aprons. So that was the kind of thing that was happening at the time. But of course, these lads, of course, were looking at what was going on around them. And of course, striking was becoming ever more and more popular, and they would have been seeing that. Right, right, right. Um, so you mentioned the Pierce River, right? Yeah, so we, we have, and we have a Pierce exhibition, but I suppose I'll just show you a couple yeah. of different things around uh, the museum oh. itself. I suppose one of the ones that you might even relate to yourselves in Canada, we have um, a fantastic famine exhibition in here. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, and of course many Irish emigrants would have went to Canada and through Canada as well on into America. Yes. So we have the story of that uh, here at Johnstown in the museum. Well actually on that I noticed that, and I, I put it up on um, social media earlier on today, that there was a Ronan Gillespie sculpture down at Kelly's, and of course the Ronan Gillespie's are on the Keys in Dublin, ah. and the other ones are on the in Ireland Park in Toronto. Ah, very good. Yeah, the, the yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, of course. And uh, here was a Ronald Gillespie. So this is our exhibition in here, um, and again we have some very important artifacts in here in relation to the famine, I suppose. Uh, we've reconstructed the typical type of house that. Um, I suppose the poor Irish person would have been living in at that time. Yeah. Uh, and again, just to give the idea to people of how the people would have been living and how, I suppose, how poor they basically were. This is very interesting here. This shows you the daily consumption of a child. This is a display of potatoes. Yeah, which uh, says it's 2.2 kilos. Yeah, which is two for a child per day. Then you would have the adult female. Five kilos. Uh, and then you would have the adult male. Which is 6.4 or 14 pounds. So so a lot of potatoes the average person was eating here in Ireland. Um, because right, um, I know so, in, in talking with them in Skibbereen on this topic as well they were saying that the man, a man could survive comfortably well not once say comfortably but on, on that and buttermilk and the, that's all, right. all the nutrition they had, uh, what was remarkable about the potato is and of course people at the time would have described the Irish as being much stronger much healthier looking than the British and the reason being was attributed to the potato and as you've just said the buttermilk potato gave you all the nutrition you required if you were eating the potato with the skins and they did you were getting your vitamin C all the vitamins that you were needing so as I say they were described at the time as much healthier but unfortunately the potato was also to be Ireland's downfall in a way because when it uh, contracted the blight yeah. that was caused major problems then for Ireland. And as I understand it at that time there was a predominance of what was known as the lumper. That's right and that was uh, the potato that was run everyone was using throughout the whole country very successful I suppose because it was producing a lot of potatoes but because it was the only the one variety when it got the blight you know, it was very right. successful yeah. to blight. Uh, it's like that what we know now yeah. happens with Covid. Yeah, literally. Ran through all the potatoes. Yeah. The crop was destroyed uh, and again, as I say, we led to a lot of trouble then for Ireland. Um, in 1847, known as Black 47, was probably the worst years of the famine. And they reckon by the end of the famine, at least a million people had died, not mainly through starvation, but probably through disease. Uh, and again, we're talking about COVID, so a lot of people would have contacted disease. Of course, they were immune system, they were hungry. 
very low disease ran right through the and country and then many people emigrated. Yeah, it's good to talk about it in that context because people now can relate to something like COVID and the impact Yeah, it had. of course. Whereas previously, you know, these numbers of uh, uh, something happening in that kind of mass population was something back in the 1840s, yeah. not current. Yeah. But, it, but it now it kind of it does, yeah, it does kind of make it a little bit more, I suppose, real for us. So, Miles, the other thing is that then that people would have uh, migrated from here at that time. That's where right. Would, uh, where would the ships have gone from? From Wexford? So, and no, they would have mainly went from Dublin okay. and from Dublin over to England, to different ports, possibly Liverpool, Portsmouth different ports around uh, Britain and from Britain then they would have emigrated on into maybe over to Canada a lot of people went to and of course they migrated from Canada even then on into America but a lot of people of course stayed in Canada and I mean there's I mean many stories about the people that would have went to Canada as well and, and of course very difficult when they were emigrating to these different countries um, these countries then eventually they didn't want Irish emigrants these are famine uh, maybe people that are after a journey maybe carrying disease whatever I know in Canada I think there were quarantining people and there were yeah, and Canada yeah, between Grossing yeah. um, but also and, and it's very pertinent as well because there was a monument or a, a park opened in Toronto last year uh, well, or thereabouts uh, Grasset Park because Toronto back 1847 had a population of 18,000 yeah. 20,000 Irish right yeah it's incredible, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. And the park that opened, the Grasset Park, was to acknowledge the medical profession who hadn't been as such acknowledged before. Now, again, yeah. what's relevant is we've just come through COVID. Yeah. Yes. And the it's medical profession have really had to step up yeah. to the mark yeah. and been put under tremendous strain. And we've seen them do great things. Yes. Yeah. And the whole concept of the park was there was Dr. Grasset, yeah. young guy. Yeah. He volunteered to go down and work with the Irish who died six months later. Yeah. That's and so yeah, he, so he obviously contracted disease. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so this park is a recognition to all the medical professionals across Canada who helped the Irish during the Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, and of course, America, the emigrants sort of went to Canada, America, Australia. And then we have a great story here about pioneer and Wexford women. And these were women that would have ended up in the work house, Wexford okay. Workhouse at the time yes. and those women, why their story is quite remarkable, 61 of those women, they went off to Cape Town in South Africa right. it was kind of an unusual one uh, they were looking, there was an, uh, an emigration program called the Earl Grey Scheme yeah. uh, this was at the time of the famine yeah. the idea being that they'd pay for these girls to go to the colonies Yes. why would they want them to go to the colonies well there was a couple of things, the workhouse itself the women were known, if you can imagine this, as the permanent dead weight. Yeah. Why were they known as that? Well, it was much easier to find employment for the men that were in the workhouse. Yeah. Very difficult to find the women in Ireland at that time employment. Yeah. Now, they were training them in the workhouses maybe to become domestics. That was the skill they were going to give to them. Um, but this scheme, uh, or the grey scheme, why the colonies? Well, there was a shortage of women in the colonies. Right. Lots of men had been shipped out. Yeah. Uh, not so many women. So they were looking for women to go over there as well to maybe become wives for the men that were over there. Yeah. But these women, they made that remarkable journey in 1849. They headed over to... Um, to South Africa and if we walk down along I just do a little bit and again we're talking about um, COVID what's remarkable about it to qualify to go and leave the workhouse uh, they would have had to have been vaccinated so 
there's a great uh, title there, vaccination then as it is today. These girls would have had to be vaccinated against smallpox to go over then right. to the colonies, right. which is remarkable. They were also required to have the three R's, which was reading, writing and arithmetic. Yeah. Uh, so they had to have a number of different things. They were also supposed to be orphans. Um, now, were the orphans, many of them probably were, but some would have even faked that to try and get away. Remember, they're trying to leave a famine-ravaged country, yeah. so the hope of getting away to a new life, this is very attractive for them. And, uh, and again, we always tend to forget, uh, you mentioned vaccination, yeah. back in the middle of the 1800s, yeah. that medicine was aware yeah. and also recognised yeah. there were certain things could prevent or help. Yeah, it's true, yeah, and, and again, they, they were aware, it's remarkable, when I was researching it again, and I came across this, that they were vaccinating at that time. Yeah. You know, you don't think you wouldn't be going back so far, but uh, some great artefacts then in here to go with this exhibition. This table is from the workhouse in Waterford. Right. So this is an actual workhouse table. So you can imagine the people would have so sat here, the, the stools there to go with it as well. Ten feet by ten yeah. feet. Yeah. With so wooden benches on each side. Ben- yeah, Typical of what you would have seen if you looked at Oliver the movie. Yes, in, very, in very, 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 very same. Yeah. You can imagine it, can't you? Indeed. Uh, so the people that would have been sitting at this table, they were people that certainly didn't want to be here no. at this table, but they had no other choice. Yeah. No money, no food, nowhere to go. And again, as I understand it at that time, when you mentioned the um, move to move people on from the workhouse, the workhouse were financed by the, the landowners and they weren't particularly comfortable financing. No, they weren't going to be happy with it, so, so they would have been... Get yes, exactly, exactly. They'd be wanting to move them on. Uh, another remarkable artefact that we have here, here is this door here. Okay. And this is from the workhouse in Callan, in County Kilkenny. Right. You can imagine people coming to this door to knock on this door. Yeah. This is certainly not what they'd have wanted to have been doing. This is the last place you're wanting to head through in through this door. So it's again a remarkable thing to have. Uh, really it great is. that we have it here. And we have visited the workhouse in uh, Portumna. Ah, <coughs> uh, yeah, I haven't done it. Yeah. So when you go through and you see how yeah. you have the four rooms for the, yeah. the different the men, the women, the, and the children, how they were all separated. Uh, so yeah, nobody really wanted to go through. No, these. that's the door you'd have been avoiding at all costs. But again, as I say, people just had no choice. Yeah. They had no work. They were hungry. Uh, and then, of course, we had lots of mass evictions here. So again, people are out on the road, out on the streets. Uh, so that's the door they've been heading through. When you look at some of these passage stories, have you guys done any research as regards the descendants of some of them? Yeah, we try, I've tried to do a little bit with that, and I have done. We'll just follow it around here. Yeah. But again, essentially, the girls would have left Wexford Workhouse, they went to Dublin, they went on, over to Portsmouth, and Portsmouth then they were making the journey down to South Africa. And it's kind of a remarkable journey. Sorry, lads. Um, it's a remarkable journey because you can see now the route they would have taken. Yeah. They would have went from Portsmouth down to Tenerife. Yeah. They would have stopped off maybe there, maybe stopped off at the Cape Verde Islands. Yeah. Come down then to Rio de, Je- de Janeiro. Yeah. And then crossed over to Cape Town. And then you can see then from there went on to um, Australia. Right. A long journey. Uh, and of course, then the conditions on the boats would have been quite difficult again in famine times. But the girls that travelled under the Earl Grey scheme, yeah. 
they were probably a little bit luckier because they were better looked after. Right. They would have had people accompanying them to make sure that they were okay to oversee their welfare. They would have had to follow many rules while they were on board the ship. And then when they would have arrived over to South Africa, and again you can see the heading there, it was like being sent to the moon. Yeah. Like, can you imagine leaving Ireland at that time in 1849, uh, leaving a town, a small town like Wexford? Most of the girls would have been from the countryside. Well, when they'd have arrived over to South Africa, it would have been so different. You know, the sights, the smells, the different peoples. There were many different races of people living in mm-hmm. uh, South Africa even at that time. So for them, it would have been so, so different. Uh, I know I was very conscious on the first visit to Crossfield that when you arrive across the and you look you could be looking at the Irish landscape yeah. on the other side yeah. of St. Lawrence yeah really yeah. So very much yeah. I could see that as the ship was yeah. down to St. Lawrence yeah. um, there would have been a sense of that this is like home yeah which would have been very attractive, I suppose, it if you have that kind comfort- of. Yeah, it would be. It would. Yeah, of course yeah, it would. Yeah, of course it would. Yeah. Um, of course, when the first group of girls, the first lot went out, they were looking for more to make the trip. So there was great reports sent back of the life in um, in Cape Town. Right. But I'm sure maybe that they weren't so true. The Board of Guardians, of course, they were wanting to have very positive uh, reviews of the country because they were wanting other people to make the trips. But uh, we would have said, one of the girls would have sent back that the eating and drinking is very good and the climate is delightful. I'm sure maybe in the very hot months, um, you know, mightn't have been so delightful. Another of the girls, Bridget Lynn, she found employment as a day nurse. Uh, in her account of life in Cape Town, she stated that she was well looked after and she even had her own roomy bedroom. Well, yeah. Again, probably very far from the truth. And of course, if you're going to go over as to be a domestic, and some of these girls, that's what they ended up doing, um, it would be much better if you went in to be a domestic where there was a group of servants. But if you went in as one person, you're the only domestic, you have to do everything. Indeed. So life is much tougher. And some of these girls, that's what they would have ended up doing. But we do know, and you had asked me, uh, we know about Alice Kelly. We did a little bit of research on some of the girls. Difficult enough to try and trace them back. But we know Alice, she went over, she was born in 1831 and she died in South Africa in 1909. Uh, during the famine, Wexford girl Alice Kelly entered the town's workhouse. She was one of the girls that selected to travel under the Earl Grey scheme. Upon her arrival in South Africa, she found employment as a domestic servant. Uh, if she was the only servant in the household, as I mm-hmm. said, she would have, uh, which was commonly the case for these girls, she would have been the first to rise every morning to light the fires and last to bed at night, fires banked and the household set in order. She typically would have worked six days a week and was on call throughout the night. Alice ended up marrying a policeman named George Cook at the age of 20. Being married to a policeman, Alice would have spent a lot of her time alone as life for George in the police force often meant living for days on and in the saddle, patrolling the streets of Cape Town, coming under fire, breaking up African faction fights. Records show us that Alice went on to have at least three children. Sixty years after arriving in South Africa, Alice is listed as a widow and still residing in Cape Town. Mm. Her death certificate records her age of 78 and her date of passing as the 28th of the 10th, 1909. So it tells us she did go on to have a productive life. She Mm. had kids. Mm -hmm. She left a life here that was probably very difficult. So you'd like to think that her life over there was somewhat better Mm -hmm. and she had a success over there. 
And were you able to ever connect with any of the kids? No, we've never I connected with any of the kids, yeah. unfortunately. I know. Yeah. That's, that's if you can... Yeah, do so that full so, so you'd know, yeah, for yeah. the grandkids now, probably in that case. Because uh, I know a lot of work has gone on again up on the Colatin estate. Yeah. With uh, yeah. reaching out particularly yeah. into Ottawa, yeah. where yeah. Um, Fitzwilliam yeah. sent a lot of... Yes, yeah, yeah. So they, yeah, which, uh, which, see, this one was uh, because this exhibition, and because it was only sixty-one girls, yeah, being, a lot of the places you'd have much more and better records as well. And then in South Africa, the records seemed to be sketchy enough, you know, right. and and so th- we couldn't track anything about them entering the country, nothing like that. But it was true. Then we found our marriage certs, basically the birth certs of kids and stuff that we were able to kind of. Piece the story oh, yeah. together with right. Alice. Yeah. So that's just a little bit of a yeah. story flavour of the, the uh, famine exhibition. Indeed. Yeah. So where are we going from here? So we'll walk out here now. We are at Johnstown Museum and Gardens and Castle, and we are just exiting the famine museum. We'll be back with you in a moment. So, Milo, we've just come quickly through what would be a, a great exhibition of all farm machinery and a whole lot of tools, a bit like, and I mentioned as we were walking through it there. We visited the um, uh, Country Life in um, Kilrush last year, and he has a great collection as well. But now you're coming in here into this room, and it is furniture. Yes, and it's uh, our Irish vernacular furniture collection, uh, one of my favourite collections here at uh, at the museum. Um, and vernacular furniture is the furniture that would have been typically found in your, I suppose, the patch towers of Ireland. So it would have been the more working class or the poorer person's furniture. But uh, we have a great contrast here as well because, of course, we have the beautiful furniture over in the castle of the castle. Right. But I feel the furniture over here equally as beautiful. And this is the furniture that would have been made by the local person or the person living in the house themselves. And basically what you're using when you're creating this furniture is the stuff that you have around you. You know, because they don't have the money to be doing, I suppose, what they would have been doing with the furniture over in the castle. But I'll just show you, I'll point out a couple of pieces to you. Um, We have, of course, and this would have been pride of place, our uh, kitchen dresser. And again, this was what everyone would have loved to have had. And this had a number of purposes. It was used, I suppose, to show off all your finery. So if you had your fine pieces, that's where they're going to be displayed here on the dresser. You can see this one here. Uh, the rack there has a place to put your spoons in okay, yeah. and normally these dressers they would have been located opposite the fireplace and the fireplace of course is the heart of the house yeah. uh, it's where everything would have happened in the, the traditional Irish house uh, people would have gathered there to eat to meet to sing to dance everything was happening in there but this dresser would have been facing opposite the fireplace the spoons there are there and of course there a reason for that they're reflecting light from the fire back into the room remember you don't have electricity but again people come up with the greatest of ideas I suppose where there's a want you find a way of kind of uh, improving your situation you can see with this dresser here we have in the bottom of it some hens yeah and they're kept inside why would you say they're kept inside because there's no foxes in here there's no well there's no foxes in here exactly but the other reason is of course if you have these hens in by the fireplace throughout the winter months they're going to continue to lay eggs yeah. so you're having your eggs on a year round basis but you're right you're protecting them as well because they're very valuable to you yes. you don't want the fox to come along and take them uh, but so uh, my lord do you know or does it why is it called a dresser 
I don't know that now. You're after catching me there now. And we all know what it means. <laughs> this piece we, we know what it means. <laughs> this piece here, yeah, is one of my favourite pieces. This is a beautiful you can describe it there. Well I would have put it down as kinda of the bench you'd find inside the door of the parish priest's house. Yeah, yeah, very well or the local person's house. Uh, yeah, just inside, beside the fireplace probably. Yeah. But why I love it so much is it came in here to us a few years back and it came from a house where the man he had lived by himself, he was into his eighties when he passed. We were delighted to get it. But what's remarkable about it and you can see it there he always sat beside the fire. Yeah. And you again can describe it. Well, on one side you can see where it is. The the the, the original, what would have been the original stain or whatever, is showing where he sat yeah. because it has the, the colouring has changed. Yeah. And you can but see where he sat. And that just tells us that story. And look, at, you can also see the wear on the handle the there. Way, yes. Because that's where he would have been. Now, uh, what's interesting though is it's like from a comfort perspective where we the way we sit today, you know, we're looking at what is like a Ryanair seat <laughs> no, with no recline. Almost worse, <laughs> but probably if we knew the truth, better for your back because your posture is probably better in that seat because you're sitting up straight. <laughs> <laughs> Um, then we have these lovely pieces here we say for instance uh, and you're probably quite familiar with them uh, this piece here this is known as our settle table and of course when you lift it up it converts into a seat I so it's dual, dual purpose never seen one of those dual purpose yeah. uh, and just a lovely piece isn't it but again remember you're in a small house space is very oh valuable yeah. Yeah. so if you can have that dual piece of furniture uh, the dual function so you know when we talk about Ikea uh, they were ahead of the time back there they were able to do those uh, different pieces of furniture have, probably would that have been a child's bed then as well probably. it could have been, been actually yeah, it could have yeah. been this one is probably my favourite uh, this is a small table yeah and you have wow. your small seat isn't that yeah. lovely? Fantastic. Isn't it a beautiful piece? Fantastic. Yeah, piece, yes. I love that piece. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Because, uh, of course, we now hear of the concept um, of tiny homes. Yes. And that's what people Yeah, they and they're, homes they're the they type of pieces that they'd want to be using. Here's another one. Um, <coughs> this, of course, is our that's bed. A, that's a Murphy bed. And that's a Murphy bed. And of course, the idea that it's the Murphy bed is they were making them here in Ireland. Again, you can see the way it would have folded away into the press. Uh, it, of course, took that idea with them to America then, and they would have, and eventually it's become known as the Murphy bed over there. And what was it? What would it have been known as here? I, I'm not sure actually either. Because again, given the name Murphy, you know what? Well, well, we call it as a press bed. Right. It would have been a press bed, I suppose. So it went yeah. into the press. And this one here, very interesting, is your canopy bed. Yeah. And again, it would have had a number of different reasons to have the canopy on it. It's a beautiful bed. Yeah. Um, one reason would be, of course, you'd be able to put a curtain on it. 
Yeah. That's keeping you warmer, protecting you from the draft. But remember again, if you're in a thatched house and those houses at the time that it had nothing between you and the thatch, it'll keep anything from falling down on you. Yeah. The thatch itself and but also God knows what could have been running around in the thatch. <laughs> so, so uh, when it was raining cats and dogs. Yeah. It's protecting you. So it's again another nice piece. So and I just this furnished by the way, this is all and again to for listener, it's all authentic. All authentic. It's all original. All original. And it all came from a variety of houses. And different locations. houses, different locations yeah. throughout the country. We, we'll often get a new piece in. Uh, it, this furniture has become very rare now. Um, this furniture, of course, the people at the time, when Ireland started to modernise and become more wealthy, people at the time wanted to get rid of it. Yeah. So it was shipped out in its bucket loads. A lot of it would have ended up just being scrapped. But then some of the European countries... Uh, took a liking to it also and they start buying it up so it's not unusual to find pieces like this over in France Irish pieces of furniture over in Belgium those kind of countries they were buying it up we were wanting to get rid of it of course and you can see it is a tougher type of furniture when you look at it you described the seat up there of course people want it more comfortable uh, the more luxury uh, chairs that type of thing but as I say also now this furniture has become quite valuable What what would a lot of the wood is pine because again Ireland had lost a lot of its forests yes by the early 1600s really 1700s so there's not wood it's not plentiful here so a lot of the wood that you'll see is actually pine that was brought in probably from Canada yeah probably from Canada possibly again that's for the yeah yeah and and of course they didn't want to go back with an empty load so they were coming back with you're right yeah probably Uh, and again what's remarkable if you look at some of these dressers um the most valuable ones now and unfortunately the pieces we have in most of Ireland I suppose all over they've been dipped and stripped of their paint yeah. but the ones that you'd love to get your hands are, are the ones that were painted and of course some of these dressers would have had up to 20 layers of paint yeah. uh, and this furniture why would that be? well how do you do up your house when you have very little money? you paint and paint and paint so the layers would have built up over the years and of course you'd love to find the ones with the layers now but unfortunately they're quite rare is that inlay I see on the back it is yes that's that's a settled bed part of the settled bed Uh, now you can see it needs a lot of restoration there's some of it missing but it comes from a house again down in Kerry I think it is and you can see the decoration again yeah. and of course this is the vernacular thing you're doing up stuff the way you can and how you can afford it but it's quite lovely you can see there's crosses there yes. there's flowers there's almost like shamrocks maybe that type of thing on it yeah. uh, but it's lovely to have it and you can see the shamrocks Shamrock here on this yes. press here as well yeah uh, so it's lovely that's the way the person was doing up their furniture sure. yeah essentially yeah. Well, fascinating uh, and then I'll just give you a quick look then into this room because again it's a great room um, and this in this exhibition we've just gone through the nursery we reconnected uh, re- recreated uh, kitchens in Irish houses or Irish traditional houses throughout the different ages so we have this lovely kitchen here and that would date from probably the late 1800s yeah. Uh, and you can see it's quite a comfortable kitchen you would have been quite well off if you had a nice kitchen like this it has everything probably you need uh, you can see you're doing your cooking over there on the fire yeah. uh, you have your table there yeah. you have your seat you have your settled bed yeah. um, you have your press here 
Um, so you have the things that you're needing. Indeed. And, uh, the, and the loom in there, or the, the spinning wheel. The spinning wheel is there as well. Now, if you come up here, then you're coming into a more modern kitchen. This is even better again. Yeah. Uh, this kitchen now is into the 1900s. Again, you're still cooking on the fireplace, you can yeah. see. But also now you have the luxury of a little small stove. Right. So you can keep that going much more easily, you know, yeah. it won't go out on you, you can boil your kettle on top of it. And, and now you all see, see there's sink. water inside, yeah. which is a great thing, of course, again, yeah. making your life much easier. And then you move up here, and we're moving now into electrification. I mean, Ireland was uh, electrified in um, 1946. You have the much more comfortable kitchen. Yes. Uh, so this is a kitchen probably from the 1960s. Um, and this again, this starting to look familiar. <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit, isn't it? <laughs> and you know, you have to worry when you know when you're in a museum and things are starting to look familiar to you. You know, you're probably in trouble. <laughs> I recognise it all. But this kitchen, um, not only do you have the stove now, yeah. you've also got your electric cooker again, yeah. making life much easier. I you that have your well, washing yeah. machine with the ringer, of course, life much. Hand much easier you have your television uh, so you're getting the comfort now you have your radio of getting yeah. news broadcasting oh, yeah your Formica Formica table Formica table right. uh, of course these the furniture I was just showing you the lovely vernacular furniture yeah. that was all swapped for this that's right uh, this is what people are wanting this more modern thing yeah uh, and of course then Every Irish household at the time have a look up there. That's right, when yeah. the electricity came, the, the Sacred Heart. Sacred Heart with the lantern. And yeah, the, the uh, you always had that. John, John is Kendi's pictures. He's, he's, so he's 1963. So we're missing John. Yeah. He's the other man that would have been normally in the <laughs> kitchens, of course. <laughs> all right, I'd go to wrap up, which is in here. I'm, I'm going to take. I'm seeing all the electricity. I'll take you over. The I'm going to take you over to the well, castle for a very quick. Oh yeah, a very quick look. All right. Right. You're the Star Trader Candidate Home Abroad, and we are now walking into Johnstown Castle, Milo Miller. And Milo, we've just come through, and we're into a beautifully panelled um, hall to start with. Yeah, this is a. Uh Irish oak uh, panelling here on the walls. Now I had given you a little bit of a history of the castle. Uh, what we're in here now today would date from the 1830s, so the biggest period of, uh, I suppose, renovation that happened here at the castle um, was between 1810 and 1880. And the work you're going to see probably now when we're walking around will date from that time period. But this hallway, yeah, the original panel, Irish oak panelling, uh, the original mint and floor tiles, these date from the 1840s. Uh, these would have been very expensive at the time, but as you can see, if you buy quality, still here a couple of hundred years later. Now, Milo, an awful lot of houses like this came a cropper. In the 1920s. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we were very lucky. We survived here very well. But the family had a great reputation in the area as always being good. Firstly, to their tenants. And they do appear to have been, because again, through research, we know that. Um, but also then when they gifted the estate to the Irish state. But that would have been now in 1945. Yeah. They did have a clause in that that all the tenants, all the people working here were to be looked after and be treated uh, or given jobs essentially. Right. So all the people that were here, they ended up in state jobs right. thereafter. So they did have that very good reputation, thus the reason probably the house. Yeah, I can't remember now which house I was in. 
and it survived, it wasn't burnt because at the time they handed it over to um, what would have been the Irish uh, at the time as the headquarters yeah. and that because it was the headquarters it yeah, it was left. yeah they left it, it, they left yeah, it be. well the reputation of family here was good that's yeah. probably our reason why uh, so what we're in here is this is the castle sentry hallway uh, so you would have arrived here in your carriage probably in the 1830s, 1840s, 50s, pulled up outside on your pork or share, came down here into this space, and you would have probably been greeted by a couple of servants, the fire would have been lighting over there. So this was a place to come in to warm yourself, relax a little before you proceed on into the rest of the house. But remember, a long journey then, even 10 miles in carriage, that's quite a distance. Yeah. So they would have been travelling, and some of them would have been travelling 100 miles. They also call this the Apostles Hall, and you probably know because the reason yeah. why, yeah. Uh, because it's uh, decorated with apostles, uh, again around the Irish oak panelling. This has been stained. Um, the castle we're in is a Gothic Revival style castle, uh, and when I say Gothic Revival in style, it's very, you can see it's very church-like. Yes. You can see it in the windows, the doors, uh, you can see it in the original pieces of furniture there, two original seats there, and they look almost like church pews, don't they? When this like this was being built, like we know in this day and age to get anything elaborate built is hugely expensive and takes a long time. It does. And an awful lot of these things would have been done effectively nearly by slave labour. There would have been. Now, probably the men that would have been working on this, as you can see, is quite skilled work. Yes. and we know, again, we have a great account of the men that were working here because there was a man came here, uh, he was doing travelling around the countryside. Uh, he was recording a lot of the work that was happening in these places. Um, so we have a good account of it. Uh, Thomas Lacey was his name. Uh, as I say, good accounts of the people that were here. Local men living in and around the area at the time. But as I say, they would have been skilled. So they probably were being paid better yes. money. Now, Probably the men them working in the more, uh, I suppose, harder jobs in a way in the yeah. outside. Yeah. Probably on a lot less money. Yeah, yeah it would be labour was cheap. Yes. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. I know was the, the stonemason was prized. Yes, he would have been prized, and you can see the stonework out there on the yeah. castle, and you have your granite and, and your carpenter. Yeah, carpenter yeah, carpenters. carpenters would, they would have been they prized. Would have been prized as well. <clears throat> yeah. So this would be the castle's grand hallway, and again. These rooms, again, very much designed to impress you upon entry. Now, these are wealthy families. The Grogan family, they're a wealthy family. What are they doing? They're wanting to show off. They're wanting to show off their wealth, their status. So these principal rooms, when you come in, they're going to give you the wow factor. And you only have to look up here and yeah. see why it's called the Grand Hallway. You see that beautiful dome or lantern up there. Yeah. So as I say, it's impressive. They would have used this room primarily for music and singing. Okay. Uh, there was a pipe organ there on the wall. Why music and singing? Well, you can hear, as I speak, and hear the acoustics in the room. Are Indeed, fantastic. yes. We do have carols over here at Christmas time, and it does sound gorgeous. Now, again, putting this in context, we're looking at roughly, I would think, about, what, 25 feet square? Yeah. 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 Yeah, so it's not a huge room. It's not, and the rooms in the castle, they're not huge. They're, a lot of people, what they like about it is it is quite livable. Now, I'm just going to give you a quick look into this hallway. So uh, where did these people make their money? So they were merchants. 
initially in Wexford Town, yeah. uh, the Grogan's, uh, so they would have been probably shipping and okay. um, that type of thing, but then they became landowners essentially, right. and the land is set out to tenants, and the tenants are sending in rents here on yeah. a yearly basis, and eventually through, I suppose, being less land, they become extremely wealthy. But again, as I say, it's all land and estates, rents coming in here on a yearly basis, lots of money. And of course, when you have lots of money, what's the thing you'll do? You'll renovate the house, and that's Indeed. what they were doing here. Um, we can hear the reverberation. And we can. We'll probably it, hear it better in the, when, when, to, when this is being... This, because I can hear yeah, it. Yeah. The echoes are there. This room is the castle's hallway. So, unfortunately, when the state came in here, they said the staircase had dry rot and it was removed. But this is where the staircase would have been housed. Oh. Uh, there's the pipe organ there for the music out there in the hallway there. Right. Uh, it was an imperial twin staircase. It would have went up there to window level. Yeah. Uh, you can see it's quite a height yeah. and there was return stairs then up to the next level. Right. Uh, it would have been an Irish oak staircase, again hand carved by the men that would have been building it here at the castle. They would have been here for a number of years while they were constructing it. Almost impossible to replace it today because yeah. it cost thousands and thousands of pounds or euros. Uh, to do so. So we did lose an important component indeed, of the building. Indeed. Um, when they came in, as I say, they said... Now, you mentioned dry rot, and of yeah. course that's another real challenge with an old property yes. with an awful lot of wood in it. But woodworm and dry rot. Yeah, and we seem to have been very lucky here. As you can see, everything is in quite yeah, good condition. Fantastic yeah. condition. Yeah. And now we were lucky again... I suppose I'll give you a little bit of the story as we're going along. Uh, I'm going to take you in here now into this room. And in the library. This is the library. I recognise it. Yeah, I recognise the library. <laughs> you didn't want to come in here. <laughs> uh, so this is our library. And again, I suppose, what's the thing you notice when you come into this room? Uh, as I said, they're designed to impress you. What's the most impressive thing do you think is about the room? Um, well, the roof first of all. Well, the roof is very impressive, but the the, the bookshelves themselves. Yeah, the bookshelves are very impressive. Are very impressive. Also, the roof, and when yeah. we have the tours in, that's two of the things people will say. Yeah. But there's something even more impressive, and um, it's out there. Well, it's the, gardens, the views, the gardens. It's all about the views when you come into these principal rooms. Yes. And these are very deliberate because they're all man-made. These are the views you're intended to see from the castle. We're very lucky here that we actually have three lakes. We have the upper lake or the garden lake, the castle lake out there before us. That was hand dug out. And we also have our lower lake, uh, which is a valley that was dammed and flooded. And it's the largest freshwater lake in County Wexford. So the largest freshwater lake in the county is a man-made lake here at Johnstown Castle. But what that does for us is, I suppose, and for the public, and we have a lot of members that come in here or they've joined here, they use it then for walking. So the grounds here are very beautiful for walking in. And of course they change then throughout the seasons as well. Uh, you did point out the ceilings. Yes. The ceilings are beautiful. They're paper mache, can you believe? And they would date from the 1830s. They're gold gilded. Uh, Irish oak um, bookcases. I'm also seeing up there, uh, for example, the stag. So they're yeah, they're important. You can see the the lion there. Yeah. That will be part of the Grogan family coat of arms. Okay. And then you would have the stag or the rain there. There. Yeah. He's part of the Morgan family coat of arms. Okay. And he would have come into the family. I'll tell you a little bit about him maybe in the next room. Yeah. Um, 
Lots of like, likewise, I see the different crests. Yes, them. and they're all parts of the family coats of arms as and well. And then we have the harp. Yeah, you have all. Yeah, so I represent the symbols of. Yeah, yeah. So you have uh, also a lot of original furniture to the castle in here. Right. Uh, lots of uh, tables, chaise lawns, those type of things. So I'm going to take you now from here into our next room. But I'm going to throw you a challenge before we go in because we have a secret door in this room that's going to take us into the next. So I'm going to ask you now, can you find that door for me? Um, have a look around. Uh, it's, um, <laughs> this is reminiscent of... Um, That'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> As I told you, boarding school. <laughs> you remember, you remember. <laughs> Very good. The, just for your listeners, the, the, uh, the doorway is in the bookcase. That's right. One of the, one, what appears to be book panelling is actually a, quite a large door. And at school, that was the president's office. <laughs> so now we I didn't want to be in the library as that door opened. <laughs> so we are now into our castle's dining room. And again, you can see you have your very impressive views. We're very lucky again that we have a number of original pieces of furniture in this room. The dining table itself is original, and you can see it's quite wow. an impressive table. But I suppose our most important original piece that we have here is this painting here. Yeah. And the reason that's so important to us is it shows us Hamilton Knox Brogan Morgan, his wife Sophia Rowe, she was the first cousin, she was from um, Kilmore here in Wexford, and their eldest daughter Elizabeth. It shows us the family that's responsible for this room, right. the castle we're in itself, and the views out beyond. So, very important to us. Um, Hamilton, he inherited the castle from his father. His father, he passed in 1815. Hamilton was only seven years of age when he inherited the castle. Before he turned, he wasn't allowed to inherit the castle properly till he turned 21. But in the meantime, a second cousin twice removed, Alderman Samuel Morgan from County Waterford, left him a further 20,000 acres. There was a condition attached to that, and that was that he would take on the name Morgan. And he did so. I reckon you take on, if I said to you 20,000 okay. acres, I reckon you take <laughs> on the name. I'd have no problem myself. <laughs> but upon the age of 21, he became Hamilton Knox Grogan Morgan, and he also became the largest untitled landowner in Ireland. So mm. super wealthy. Uh, now, no title here. But they, you can see in the painting here, they're adding to their coats of arms. You have the Grogan family coat of arms in the painting. Right. You have the Roe family. But they're making themselves more important by uh, creating the coats of arms. They don't have the title. But as I say, you asked me where the money was coming from. Yeah. Well, they have all this land. Right. All set out to tenants. Loads of money coming in here. Now, what's one of the first things you do when you come into a lot of money? You renovate the house. That's right. And that's what they said about doing here at Johnstown Castle. The fireplace in here is marble. Yeah, that's marble. Uh, and again, it's got coats of arms yes. in it as well. You can see that there as well. Uh, again, original uh, wooden surround on it. Yeah. Um, and again, we have the paper mache ceilings in this room. Again, remarkably in good, such good condition Indeed. after so long. Now, we do have that very important uh, original piece as well. That's I'm sure you know what that was used well, that was for. probably to summon the service. It was used actually, it would have been hit out there in the grand hallway. Oh, it would have been the guests. Yes. That was the 
was supper time. It was dinner throat. time. Yeah, exactly. That would tell you eventually the sound would go up around to the bedroom. Yes. That's informing you dinner will be ready come down for dinner. And that is the, <laughs> like, like the top rank gong. That's it. Now, we're going to take a trip, unfortunately, not up the original staircase because we've lost that. Oh, yes. This is a much more uh, college-like staircase. Yes, yes, we weren't allowed to use the, the main staircase either. We had to use the back stairs. That's the word. They were referred to as the back stairs. <laughs> That's, yeah, this, would have been, this would have been the main stairs, if you can imagine, when they lost the, um, the, the grand staircase. Yes. Yeah, we were in a house um, earlier in the year in Scotland and it had the grand staircase. Um, do you remember that? Uh, yeah, I'd say it was lovely, was it? Well, yeah, it must have been. Yeah. 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 Again, you see, you'd be very impressive if you're coming up that staircase. So yeah. this is the castle's uh, drawing room. Uh, this is a beautiful room, isn't it? This is probably the nicest room in the house, or in the castle, sorry. Um, the drawing room, they're normally located on the ground floor of these big houses. But here at Johnstown, we have it on the first floor, and you probably know the reason why. I can see it. All about We're the looking years. out at the water, the yeah. gardens. Don't yeah. we? Yeah, it is beautiful, no. isn't it? Um, when the house, when the facilities are open, are these areas open to the they public? They are indeed, yeah. So I'm basically taking you around, really, on the tour, really. Yes. So I'm showing you the principal rooms that you'll see on the tour. Right. Um, <coughs> so on the, on the tour, then, you guys provide a guide yeah, as well, guide, so yeah. what we're yeah. hearing. Yeah, so yeah. you'll be hearing some of this story, and but in a more in-depth way than I'm telling right. you now, even yes. today. You'll be hearing more of the stories of the family and such. But uh, this room um, would have been Sophia's room. That's the lady in the painting downstairs. So this right. would have been her space up here. Uh, so okay. it's quite remarkable. Um, when Hamilton died, uh, and he died, he was only a young man. He was uh, only 46 years of age. He had two surviving daughters, uh, Jane, Jane here, yeah. and Elizabeth, the girl in the painting downstairs. And he was quite progressive. He left his two surviving daughters, his lands and estates equally. He left his wife Sophia with a life interest in the castle, meaning she could stay here for the rest mm -hmm. of her life. Mm -hmm. uh, and she actually remarried. And she married, uh, Hamilton passes in 1854, she marries in 1856, and she marries a man by the name, and you won't believe this, of Sir Thomas Esmond. Now that ring any bells with you? Um, the Esmond was the original owner. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the Esmonds actually get back in here, right. although only for a brief period. Most remarkable about the room is you can see the two Norman knights in either corner of the room there. Yeah. They were installed there in tracing his lineage back to the original ah. Norman knights that were here at the castle. Right. So fantastic we have them. The other thing um, that's fascinating here is that those mirrors, yes. which are ceiling to floor. Yeah, and we're amazing. At, what are we looking at, a 15 foot ceiling here? Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you're looking at the mirrors that are ceiling to floor. And mirror making again at the time was still quite difficult and very expensive. Yeah. But they do a couple of different things for the room. They reflect light back in, yeah. and you can see there the shutters are mirrored as well. Yeah. Again, bringing the light back in, but they also then give you the illusion oh of yeah. a much larger room. Yeah. So they do a couple of different things for the room. And when you say reflect the light back in, of course, we're talking pre electrification. So yeah, yeah, so it's very important to light up the place. Yeah. 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 Um, geographically, what direction are we facing at the moment here? 
as in where's the sun? Oh, so we're so, this is south face. This south, south, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, south yeah, face. So, so you have the lovely heat over here. Yes. Now, there's a marked contrast when you go over to the other side. You can always feel it's cooler uh, <laughs> yeah. when you're over on the north side. Right, right. Yeah. And then there's the, uh, the fountain outside. You have the lovely fountain, uh, and then you have the follies and the walks around the lakes. There, you can see again the lovely trees all out there as well. The lower lake is just. Can we see it from here? We might. In the winter time, you definitely can. Uh, no, you can't no. see it. No, the too trees are foliage. too much foliage. That's and the foliage clears uh, in the winter time. You'll see the lower lake from this room. Uh, so we're into a bedroom here now for ladies' chamber. Uh, so this would have originally been um, a sitting room. So you would have had that very public grand drawing room out there, yes. just doing the more private family room in here. Yes. But it did have the interconnecting doors, meaning if you had a large amount of people here, you could use, uh, I suppose, entertain it yeah. a large amount, using both spaces. Right. Why a bedroom? Well, the last lady that lived over here, Lady Morris Fitzgerald, she lived until she was 82 years of age. She would have had her bedroom up on the next level, but as she was getting older, she took her bedroom down here. Right. Would have taken her closer to the workings of the house. Yeah. So she created the bedroom here. But I always reckon, look, there's your bed. Why wouldn't you have your bedroom down here? Look what you're waking oh. up to in the morning time. Yeah. Uh, quite gorgeous, isn't it? It is. Uh, and that's Lady Morris Fitzgerald. <coughs> there. Uh, she would have been formerly Lady Adelaide Forbes. She would have been Hamilton's granddaughter. Okay. So she inherited the castle from her mother. Uh, she went on to marry uh, Lord Morris Fitzgerald, second son of the Duke of Leinster. And are you familiar with the Dukes of Leinster? I know the Dukes of Leinster. Their home house, his home house would have been Carton House yeah. in Kildare. Yeah. And of course their Dublin townhouse then was Leinster House. That's right. Yeah. Uh, where now our Doyle sits uh, yes. uh, today. So he would have been really one of the most powerful uh, families in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So when she marries him, she marries into one of the most powerful families in the country. Uh, she, after her marriage, becomes known as Lady Morris Fitzgerald, and it's her bedroom we're standing in mm -hmm. here today. Mm -hmm. She's the last person that lives here at the castle. She uh, passes in 1942. When she passes, she's left the estate here to her grandson, uh, Laura, um, Morris Victor Lakin. Uh, now he's away fighting in the Second World War. He's badly injured when he's over there. He comes back to the castle, but when he comes back to the castle, it's in quite a rundown state. It hasn't been modernised. There's no electric. There's no running water. Nothing like that. Also, by this stage, land commissions have come in and have broken up these big estates. So it's like a, I suppose a compulsory purchase order. Yeah, yeah. Tenants are essentially allowed by the land, and uh, they have to sell it to them and at a much reduced rate. So there was originally uh, uh, ten thousand acres here at Johnstown. When he comes back, there's only a thousand. So no longer the land to support this type of a big house and then to compound the matter further he's facing debt duties on the estate he can't pay the debt duties he consults with family members and they decide to give the estate to the Irish state thus how we have it in state hands today right. Right. so now we'll walk over to the next room just give you a quick look in here the other thing that strikes me is that despite everything the place seems to be very well insulated they've done a big uh, restoration job over here 
about six, seven years ago. Yeah. Um, and they spent a good bit of money. Uh, one of the things, the main things they did, they did the roof on the castle. Right. Of course, that's securing it from the top down. They also installed a heating system, put in lifts over here, uh, fire alarm system, you know, proper system. Uh, so the money was spent on, I suppose, the essentials really. Yeah. But at the time, they told us we'd have to spend a lot more money if we were to do it up to the, I suppose, standard that we'd love to have it at. But of course, all the work that you're doing over here, it has to be done in a particular way. You have to have conservationists, you know, it's yeah. all got to be done properly. So very expensive. So we're into a laboratory here now. Yeah, and we begin to say, do I see the Bunsen burner over? You probably do. You probably do. <laughs> <laughs> a laboratory, via laboratory. Well, when Morris Victor Lake and gifted the estate to the Irish state, there was a condition attached, and that was that it would be used for agricultural and teaching purposes. The idea was they were going to set up a college here at the castle. Yeah. That didn't materialise. Um, but around the same time, the Department of Agriculture came here. Right. And it's the department that will be responsible for this laboratory. And they had one idea when they came in here, one key idea was they were going to map all the different soil types in Ireland. And now a huge undertaking, something that had never been done. Now remember Ireland had been under a landlord system for hundreds of years. Soil here completely depleted. So they set up a special division, I don't know whether you've ever heard of on Forest Talunctus. Yes, I remember. Yeah, yeah, they set up that. Uh, and this man here, Dr. Tom Walsh, he was employed to oversee the running of it. Now he seems to have been a very innovative man. He would have um, sent all the scientists that came here to work at the castle over to America right. to do study soil. Why? Because they were at the cutting edge of soil analysis at the time. Right. Uh, then they could bring back that uh, skill here to the castle. So the idea was you'd get farmers to send in soil samples from all over the country. Yeah. They could analyse it then and they could give feedback then to the farmers on how to improve the soil own conditions. So essentially what to add to the soil like nitrate or whatever you need to add to improve the growing conditions. And I would imagine it would also help identify what crops might have been more yes, suited to certain exactly. soils as well. could then give the feedback what you should grow there as well, but what it grow there at its base. So a remarkable legacy because today Ireland's reputation for food produce, dairy produce, it's world class. Yes. Um, we can take a little bit of credit for that here at yeah. Johnstown Castle, so it's a great legacy. Indeed, uh, no matter where we go, we find curry gold. Yeah, yeah it, is, it is a great thing. Yeah. On Forest Taluntus, that eventually became Chagas, and right. Chagas they own the whole estate here today. Right. Um, we still have the Department of Agriculture here on site, and we have the Environmental Protection Agency on site here as well. Right. So it's a great legacy, as I say, of the family. Fantastic, fantastic. So I'm going to take it down now to show you how the other half would have lived. Oh. All right. <laughs> quite, not quite so glamorous. Right. <laughs> so well, we're, we're down in the, up downstairs. We've been upstairs. Yeah, so now we're down into the kitchen area. Yeah. Of course, light down here would have been very different. Yeah. Um, uh, but equally as important, this would have been known as the engine room of the house. Yeah. So most of the comings and goings for the castle would have been occurring down here at this level. Uh, and of course down here, as I say, life very different uh, and very much a hierarchy down here as well. Yes. Uh, not only were you at the, I suppose, mercy almost of your employers upstairs, depending on where you were on the scale down here, you were at the mercy of whoever was above you. So you would have had your butler, your housekeeper, your cook, they would have been very high up, but then you would have come down lower down along the ranks. You'd have had your scullery maid maybe working down here. And of course, she would have been a very young girl probably. Yeah. Could have had a start here at the castle at 12 years of age. 
uh, very young. This is in the 1830s, right up into the 1900s. Uh, your key job then, probably at 12, would have been coming in here very early in the morning, maybe, get the stoves up and going, uh, to get the stoves ready for the day ahead. <coughs> From there, then, you would have come out here. We're standing in the prepping area for the kitchen. Yeah. But also, this is where the servants would have eaten their meals. Yeah. So you'd have helped serve the servants. And from there, then, you'd have probably went into the scullery. And what would you have been doing in the scullery? Anyone, any ideas? Scullery was where all the stuff with the pots fall up and yes. all was done. Wash up. Yeah. Wash up. And, of course, yeah. this is a castle, so wash up, very serious business. Oh, yeah. Not the way we know wash up today. No, give, out about, give out about emptying the dishwasher. No. <laughs> <laughs> the, the pots and pans would have been coming at you 24-7. Yeah. And you can imagine these pots and pans are very heavy. Now, you've seen the very fine... Uh, um, china upstairs in the dining room well you wouldn't have been washing that up it would have pots, pans, so the very difficult work and remember at the time it would have been meat, meat and meat, what did that mean? grease, grease and more grease and, all, and this is again before the current um, you wouldn't have any Brillo pads you'd have nothing like no, that no. now there, that brings me on to then you're 12 years of age, you're on wash up what's one of the big problems you're going to have? No rubber gloves. Your hands. Yeah. You can imagine your poor hands. Yeah. They're in water 24-7. And God knows what they're using, as you say, not really bad. I remember yeah, you when it was scouts, yeah. they use yeah. the sand. Yeah. So you can imagine how hard yeah. that would have been. One of the reasons, of course, you'll always see servants with white gloves. Why? They're hiding their hands. Because, right. of course, they're doing all the difficult work uh, yeah. that's going to be happening around the place. But you're 12 years of age. You've had to start here. Um, you probably have half a day a week off. Yeah. That means if you live any further than three or four miles from the castle, you probably won't even get to go home because by the time you'd have went home, you'd have been coming back, back in here again. So again, life much, much different for the people that would have been down here. Now, again, as I say, you're hoping you'll move from scullery, maybe to kitchen maid, up to parlour maid, but you're again at the mercy of the people that are around you. Yeah. So you're hoping, again, that you'll get on well enough with them that you can move up along. Now, you're 12 years of age, this is Ireland in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, you're talking over the famine times. Your family are thrilled to get you a job in here. They're delighted that you have a job. The families at that time would have been large, so when they get you a job in here, you have a roof over your head, you're going to be fed, and then hopefully you'll be able to send home a few pence, maybe on a monthly basis or whatever, right. to help support right. the rest of the family. Yeah. So, as I say, a different life down here. I know it's a big butcher's block because yeah. you said mentioned meat, meat, and meat. Yeah. So, like again, yeah. this is the major butcher's yes. block. You're looking about yeah. eight feet by. And you can see two and a half and lots of work. It's been well. Yeah. It's been well used. Yeah, it's been well used. It has indeed. I'll bring you out into the kitchen itself. No, I do see that the woodworm might have got in a yeah, bit. Yeah, I did at one stage. Yes. So this is the actual kitchen itself. Um, now what you're seeing here is only a recreation of uh, how the kitchens would have been. Unfortunately the original kitchens were moved when the Department of Agriculture came in here. Right. Uh, they took the kitchens up to the ground floor level. So what you're seeing is an interpretation of how the kitchens would have been. Right. There would have been a doorway down there that would have had a staircase behind it going directly up to the the dining room that was important of course because it was allowing you to take the food up straight up and serve it while it's yeah. still warm um, again what you'll see down here I suppose the good thing is there's natural light in the kitchen yeah but if you look out there, you're looking out on a wall. wall yeah. Up above us, we have the lakes just up above us. Yeah. What's that telling us? Well, it's telling us if you're standing over here at this table looking out there, 
You're not going to be romanticizing or no. fantasizing the day away, looking out at the lovely lakes. No. You're looking out there on the wall. You're coming in here to work and you're going to work hard. Now, this kitchen, the stoves would have been going 24-7. Yeah. Again, in the winter time, probably pleasant enough down here, but can you imagine in the summer months how warm it would have been down here? Yeah. So again, very, very warm, making your life uh, a little bit more difficult when you're working down here. And of course, when you say that also, that was a time when the staff had to wear uniforms. That's right, yes. You couldn't come down here yeah. just in the t-shirt. Yeah. Sure, no, not the way we would know <laughs> it again today, of course <laughs> not. So, <laughs> you had the aggravated conditions of that as well. Yeah. And um, the, some of the stuff that's around here, I see the, uh, what would have been the... Uh, we, have, we, have, we, have, yeah, we have some things, and I suppose things of note or interest. Uh, we have this piece here. Um, any idea what it might have been used for? Um, I've seen it before, and I can't you remember. You can't remember. Uh, no, something to do with tanks to the oven. You're not the oven, you're uh, not the fire. No, no not the fire either. You're kind of on the opposite. Uh, it would have been used for taking the ice from the ice house. Ah. So, again, if the lakes froze over here, they would have cut out blocks of ice. They'd have taken them then over to the ice house, which would have been over on the far side of the road of, of the estate here. Yeah. Uh, the ice house, of course, would have went hundreds of metres under the ground. It would have been straw lined. The idea being then that you'd have this ice to serve to your friends, family when they come here in the summer months. So it's showing off again, you're serving your lovely dessert drinks with ice. Right. So yeah, just again, <laughs> remarkable things. Um, I suppose this piece here again, important in its own way. Um, this would have probably been on wheels, it's known as a hopper. Uh, it would have been on wheels, it would have been wheeled in front of the stoves. It's lead lined as you can see, the plates are in there. They'd have come nice and warm and oh. heated up, assisting you in serving your food and getting it up there and serving it while it's still warm. <laughs> Definitely, uh, it, like, this is an education in so many different ways. Because, you know, you, you get to see a lot of cases in a house like this, you get to see upstairs. Yeah. And to really get to see the workings of the downstairs is fascinating. I know when we walked around Strokestown House, uh, we got to see the way the kitchen was. Ah, yeah. they, have that they have the original. They have the original which, uh, up there. Yeah, and of course, they're part of the they're part of the Irish Heritage Trust, so yes. they're under our umbrella. Yes. Yeah. So and did you see the famine exhibition when you were up there? We did. Yeah. It's been a number of years since we were putting a new yeah. exhibition now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and just one other thing to show you, because you probably might never get to see one again, and it's not really relevant to the castle in itself, but we have it down here to show it to you. And I'm going to I guess, again ask you what you think it is. Well, it looks awful like a waffle maker. But yes, that's what it looks like, yes. And most people will say, is it a waffle maker? But I know what it is because I can see it. Yeah. So it is a. Um, it would be the, kind of like a waffle maker because it would have been hot. Yeah. Uh, but it's flat. Yeah. And what it was doing was creating hosts. That's exactly. Because it has the reverse impression yes. on one side, and it has the cut on the other side yeah. where the priest would That's break it. the host. And it's the priest's host, because yeah. you can see it's quite big. Yes. But you, as I say, probably won't ever see them, one of them again. Yeah. They're high, uh, probably very rare. Yeah. Uh, why will we have it here? Well, uh, the St. John God nuns in Waterford. Um, 
stay at contact as we said we take it because as I say it's just an unusual yeah. place to have yeah. now how old is it it's probably not really really old because you can see it's electrified ah. probably dates from the 40s or 50s right. or whatever right. uh, but an unusual piece very unusual yeah. piece because I guess the, the thing is that one would have wondered how were they produced and they used to be produced in canvas ah that's it yes. yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the nuns were yeah, yeah that's exactly yeah. now before we leave we have this great picture here uh, and it's a great picture because it's a picture of the staff that were here the day of Kathleen Fitzgerald's marriage to Major Michael Lakin. Okay. And that picture shows us some of the staff there. Yeah. Uh, and it was taken in the summer of 1914. Okay. And of course we know what happened then in 1914, the outbreak of the First World War. Yes. So little did they know on that day what lay ahead and some of them men might have went off to fight in that first world war yeah. and of course the first world war was the beginning and the end of these great houses as well so it's a very poignant picture for us now again what's great about the picture is it shows us the staff of Johnstown yeah. and you can see they're dressed very well Yes, they actually attended the wedding Again, this is how good they were with their staff. Yeah. And then they had brought staff in from New Bay House, another big house outside of Wexford, right. to serve at the wedding. So it's a great photo to have. The hairstyles are interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, we do have that man there. Yeah. And he has his hands yes. there on that woman. Oh, now, yeah. that was, at the time, probably quite an ono. But we did find out after that... Uh, she's his fiance, and they did marry. They okay. did go on to marry. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're going to leave the castle, and we always save the best for last. I feel because we're going to exit now via our servants' tunnel. Yes. Uh, very lucky that we have the tunnel here, and it's in such great condition. It's the longest servants' tunnel we think on any of these houses in Ireland. It's 86 metres in length, so it's a substantial tunnel. And the fact that it survived and it's in such good condition is fantastic. So it's great to see the upstairs, as I say, the house. Great then to leave via this tunnel. It's a great way of ending the tour. And what was the, where is the tunnel going to? So we'll see now. You'll okay. walk, we'll walk out through it because okay. I'll let you see where you come out at the end of it. Now, why a servant's tunnel? They didn't want to see any servants out there on their lo lovely landscape. So most things for the castle including the servants were coming in through that tunnel. Right. Uh, when we're walking out, you'll see there's alcoves on either side. Yeah. Um, they would have been used for storage. Now, the temperature out there is always constant. It's always cold. Yeah. Um, they were used for storage. Uh, lots of things, but primarily for coal. And there was a lot of coal coming in here on a weekly basis. There was tons and tons of coal coming in here. Remember, there's nearly 40 rooms here in the castle. Lots of those were fireplaces. Yeah. Guess who was attending to the, those fireplaces? Yeah. The service. So again, imagine hauling that coal up around buckets, buckets up. after bucket. And remember, these fires could be going 24 hours in the very cold and weather. And the ash so back And down. the ash coming back down. So yeah. yeah, again, life very different. So we're going to walk out through the tunnel and now. No right? vacuum cleaner. And no vacuum cleaner, exactly. No, but there, there's little things that you think. Yeah, no, it's true. The practice the, it's thing. true. Yeah. You were you were on your hands and knees with a brush or yeah, whatever. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's true. Some spark landed on the carpet. Now we're walking out through this tunnel. Yeah. And when I turn out the lights here, it is black dark. So think of that 12 year old that might have been coming in here of a morning. 
um, how intimidating it probably would have been, especially for the first few times no. coming down along this tunnel. It is black dark. I'm an adult man, you know, and I lock down the castle here in the evening time, in the winter time. Yeah. I turn out these lights, I get out of here fairly quickly, you know. Do you know, was this tunnel dug or was it buried, if you know what I mean? Uh, well, was, we, was yes. it a trench that was. We have a theory on it, um, and the theory is that. Um, it was probably built possibly above ground and when they were digging out the lakes the backfill the, the, the soil from the lakes over the tunnel there. Okay, because from the upper side it's, it's the amount... Because, because it, um, it's, I suppose maybe the reason it's so well built and it's still in such good condition I suppose as well but possibly that's, that's what happened but we don't know for sure certain and the other thing I've noticed is we are walking uphill we are walking uphill exactly so we're coming from what was the basement and, and you'll, see, uh, you'll see the distance we are now from the castle when we come out Okay. you'll see if we're just going to exit here now So now we're out. We're out. Uh, and we're out in the woods. And we're out in the woods. So we're just after coming out and above us is what was the castle's meat store. Oh. So there would have been a, 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 a deer park here on the estate. You would have also had your gamekeepers here and it would have been their job to have kept the meat store there supplied with game. They would have hung the deer there to season. And you can see the way it would work then come down the steps down through the tunnel into the kitchens for preparation to go up to the dining room. They were a well-oiled machine. Yes, they were. And now, if you have a look, there's where you went in over yeah. there. So you yeah. can see the distance you are yeah. from the castle itself. Yeah, yeah. No, so it's, it's, and I said you can hardly see it with just no foliage. Yeah, you definitely yeah. are not going to be seeing yeah. it. Uh, so yeah. that's kind of the, the the bit of a tour of the castle. Well, and of course, if you do come here to visit, or if anyone comes yeah. to visit, the tour will be even more extensive than that. But I've given you the quick run through. So, Milo. Um, how long would you recommend if someone is coming here? What should you allocate of your day? Now, I suppose you'd want to give at least three hours, but because, again, I'm very much into the history. Yes. If you are, I'd be saying spend five hours here. Right. But it depends on yourself. But three to five hours. Uh, you could easily spend a couple of hours in the museum. A lot of people will only do an hour in there. If you want to do the grounds, then again, you can spend an hour and a half, two hours in the grounds. But again, people will do maybe 45 minutes or whatever, right. depending tour of the castle itself usually takes about an hour and ten minutes right uh, but then if you want to stop off get the coffee the tea which again I, I think we'd all like doing uh, that'll you'll have to give yourself another probably 45 minutes for that so three to five hours kind of so I would make say. it a day in a way well a day in a way come in the yeah. morning have your lunch yeah take in the yes. gardens take in the yeah. whole thing and yeah particularly in the summer months because yeah. the gardens are beautiful and you'll see people just sitting out in the grass sitting on the seats around you can take your time it's all really nice now would somebody be advised to book in advance? In the summer months, definitely. Uh, the tours for the castle. Now, you don't have to book for the grounds and the museum at all. Yeah. You can just come in, you go in, do that whenever you want to. If you want to do a tour of the castle, but particularly in the summer months, yes, definitely book in advance. Right. Uh, we do do a good few tours throughout the day, but they do fill up very quickly. And information for the is available on our website? Uh, so you just, um, if you go on to Johnstown, Johnstown Castle, really, if you just yeah. Google Johnstown Castle, it'll come up uh, and you'll see the website.
website is there It'll go, and all the information regarding booking opening times all there and is it only three days of the year you're not only open only three days of the year we're not open so you can come here any day okay. of the week any time of the year almost now if somebody wanted to use the, the castle for a private function is that facility up not that, not that uh, I know do anybody who won't. <laughs> uh, we do have um, marriage ceremonies in the castle. Right. Um, so they, people do book to have their marriage ceremony over here. Yeah. Uh, again, it would be kind of maybe for three or four hours in the daytime. Yeah. Uh, but they'll have their guests come out. But now, as you see, the rooms aren't that big. So it's usually for about 60 people. Yeah. Uh, and they'll get married in the castle itself. Right. They might have a little bit of a drinks reception in the apostles' uh, yeah. hallway yeah. in there, in the grand hallway. And then they usually go on to a hotel or whatever right. then after. Right. Right. Uh, so they do do that. Now, we are going to have uh, the ballroom wing. It's been under restoration at the moment. Yeah. That will be another addition. And it's kind of almost separate from the castle. So we'll be able to use that for functions as well. So right. hopefully now next year we'll have that right yeah. Milo Miller it's been a real real pleasure going through this castle with you and there's been an education in every way ah, and good. I would encourage anyone if you're certainly if you're looking at Ireland's ancient east if you're coming down to the southeast corner of Ireland Wexford this is definitely a, a place to stop and Milo is definitely one of the guys to when you arrive up reception. <laughs> I heard he's he's the guy I want to give me the tour. <laughs> uh, no, the tour is great, and I mean it's an easy sell because it's a beautiful site. Yeah. Uh, it almost sells itself, really. We don't have to do a whole lot with it, yeah. but it's great they've had you in. And uh, look, at, you can tell everyone in Canada about us when when you're when you go home. 